Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Crossroads and Culture, where life, ministry, and culture meet. I hope you've had a, gosh, I want to say a great start to 2021, but it has been a rocky start, I think, uh, for, for everybody. It's been a crazy year. Uh, we've had so much we've dealt with in 2020 with COVID-19 and to wear a mask, to not wear a mask. Now we have the the vaccine that's coming out and then all of the political stuff that's taken place uh, over the last few weeks. And and so I know it's been difficult. It's been crazy. And you're probably wondering, well, how, do we, how do we respond to this? How do we respond as believers in Jesus Christ specifically? Um, and I know I, I really I really didn't want to do this podcast, quite honestly. I, it's kind of like you jump into the mix of this and no matter what you say, you're going to be attacked, and I'm and I'm good with that. Really, I'm 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 at the place now where um, people are going to say what they're going to say. You're not going to please everybody, and 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 I and I'm good with that. I want to. I just want to say what God has, I believe, been speaking to me. I want to share that with you, and I feel like it's something that needs to be talked about. I feel like that in this day and time, specifically, those who are believers in Christ, and for our pastors and spiritual leaders. Um, need to be shepherding well in this. What does Scripture say? Does Scripture say anything at all about how do we live in these days? And so I, I really didn't want to do this podcast, but uh, but I've been writing on this and, and thinking through this, praying through this for the last really two to three weeks. Um, so today's episode is going to be talking about a lot of things that I've been hearing about um, about Trumpism, the cult of Trumpism, Christian nationalism, uh, and, and and what does all of this mean? Is there anything to this? Are there some cautions that we need to um, listen to? Or is there another perspective on this? And so that's what we're going to be talking about today on this episode of Crossroads and Culture. You know, one of my favorite movies uh, is The Princess Bride. And if you've not seen The Princess Bride, you are missing out on a classic. So so that would be your homework for um, today or this evening is to watch The Princess Bride. Uh, you can thank me later for that. But in the movie, uh, The Princess Bride, there's a guy whose name is Inigo Montoya. Or Montoya uh, and Inigo Montoya is, he's... Um, he, he's this swordsman, this kind of this serious guy, but very funny as well. It's kind of kind of a unique character, but I love him. And, and this, there's a scene where he calls out Vinzini, who is kind of like this brainiac. And he always uses this word, inconceivable, right? And so when he, when he says this word, inconceivable, Inigo Montoya says at one part of the movie, he says, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. And every time I, I think of, of what we're hearing in culture, when it comes to the word nationalist, um, I think I agree with Inigo Montoya's assessment. I don't think people, uh, I don't think it means what people think it means. Now, let me explain what I'm, what I'm, what I'm talking about. According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, right, a nationalist is, quote, an advocate of or believer in nationalism. Now, don't you hate when you go to the dictionary and you're looking up a definition of a word and it just tells you something like that? You're looking at the word nationalist and it says it's an advocate of or believer in nationalism. And now you got to go look up nationalism, right? So, so that's what I did. I looked up nationalism and nationalism, as defined by the same dictionary, is 
loyalty and devotion to a nation. Yet somehow in our culture, much like many other terms, the definition has seemed to be changed in order to fit a particular narrative. You know, nationalism like Nazi Germany and, and nationalists like followers of Hitler. Sound, sound familiar? It seems all too common in the aftermath of, of the political storm that we've come through and, and we're still sifting through to hear in the 24-7 news cycles as well as podcasts and blogs and even religious websites banter about Christian nationalism and its dangerous effect on culture, the church, and even the saints of God, right? So as a matter of fact, I read several articles and listened to just as many podcasts of those who have seemingly been quick to criticize individuals and groups who with much fervor and conviction have vocally and visibly supported President Donald Trump and the policies that he championed. There was one contributing writer to uh, to a well-known Christian website who coined the phrase, the cult of Trumpism, giving a more specific picture of what Christian nationalism looks like, at least in, in his opinion. Now, I'm, I'm sincerely curious, though, as, as to how Christians are supposed to respond toward any political candidate or leader with whom they agree. I mean, is supporting the platform and policies of a political party or group or one who leads such a platform and implements such policies, is that sinful? I would say if if it's idolatry, then absolutely it's sinful, because idolatry is sinful, whether it's it's politics or entertainment or sports or whatever it may be. But again, I'm perplexed as to how this specific pastor and contributing writer can accurately judge the hearts of those whom he doesn't even know. Perhaps his assessment's more general than qualified, which which can be very dangerous in this guilty till proven innocent culture we live. I wonder also if another article might be written soon about the cult of Bidenism, you know, professing believers who overlook the murdering of preborn children by trying to justify a modified version of pro-life, or the normalization of gender neutrality, or the censoring of biblical truth because it's deemed to be hate speech and insightful, and other issues that are excused for the sake of tolerance and unity. I, for true followers of Jesus who, who have embraced such things that Scripture expressly addresses wrong, I mean, to me, in my view, that seems more cultish. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. You're thinking, okay, here we go. This is a podcast defending Trump. It's all about Trump. It actually isn't. It's, it's, it's looking at things from, I, I hope, a very objective perspective, but, but looking at it more specifically through what does Scripture say about this, about love for country and politics, and how do we live? How do we respond? I mean, is there a place for this? Are we supposed to just go back into a corner and be quiet about it all, or how should we do this? Beth Moore, who uh, is a popular evangelical teacher, many of you may be aware of who she is, she seemed to join the chorus when she claimed that the greatest threat to the church or the saints of God is Christian nationalism. Her exact words were this, I do not believe these are days for mincing words. I'm 63 and a half years old, and I've never seen anything in these United States of America I found more astonishingly seductive and dangerous to the saints of God than Trumpism. This Christian nationalism is not of God. Move back from it. End quote. I almost want to say, whoa, hold, hold on just a minute. That, that's a pretty bold statement. I mean, it could be possible, I suppose, that 
that these views are nothing more than a caution and admonition out of sincere concern for those who've been labeled the religious right or, or Christian nationalists. But to me, it, it seems more of a strong rebuke than a caution. Perhaps if more conversations were had with individuals as opposed to general labeling, some might come to realize that a couple things, maybe, maybe that there are those who are Donald Trump supporters who are not followers of Christ, and and maybe secondly, those who are followers of Christ and who realize that their king is Jesus, not Trump or any other political, social, or cultural icon, may have supported President Trump because they do love it, this country and believe that the policies and the platform he implemented were, were good for the, for the good of this nation, not, not the demise of the nation. And, and it could be that there are those who believe that the founding of this nation was actually based on a Judeo-Christian ethic, unlike any other nation with the exception maybe of Israel. I mean, our nation, like every other nation, has had its flaws. It still does. But below the surface of our country's founding, there is undoubtedly the strong and vast roots of Christian principles. And I'm going to speak a little bit more to that in a few moments. And I know that there are those who are rewriting history. They're, they're, they're historical revisionists, and they don't want to go back and look at the founding documents. They don't want to go back and look at what we know is actual history because it doesn't fit the narrative. But when you go back and look at this, and I'm not, look, I'm not in the camp where, where I say that every founder of America was a strong believer in Jesus. That's just simply not true. History bears that out. But as we're going to see in just a little bit, history does say that the principles, the Judeo-Christian ethic, was the foundation uh, in the founding of this nation. Now, call me crazy, and, and some will, but, but haven't we seen similar support for presidents in the past? I mean, I remember even as a teenager, uh, this, the, a growing wave of patriotism and, and a love for country when President Ronald Reagan became our 40th president. Our country had just endured the, the dismal days of President Carter's administration and, and with the sense of renewed national fervor that, that really seemed to be ignited by this unknown group of amateur hockey players on the U.S. Olympic team. Who, who upset the seemingly unbeatable Russians that became known as the Miracle on Ice. Thank you, Disney, for making that movie. But I actually remember seeing that happen. I was watching it on television, and Al Michaels asking the question, do you believe in miracles? I still remember this. There was this wave of patriotic spirit, it seemed, that became almost tsunami-like. And it was a good thing. I mean, people were proud to be Americans. Even Bruce Springsteen got in the mood. Not so much these days, I'm, I'm sure. Many people who voted for Reagan were Christians, and there were many who weren't Christians who voted for him. For some reason, though, I don't recall hearing the phrase Christian nationalism or the cult of Reaganism. I wonder why. When 9-11 happened, President George W. Bush, his approval uh, rating skyrocketed. There was a sense of, of being united as a nation during a time of, of national crisis. Many of you remember where you were when when the towers, the Twin Towers, went down in, in New York City. I, I certainly remember where I was. But there, there was this sense, though, after that happened, of being united. And people filled churches. I remember the church that I pastored, the church was full after that event had happened on 9-11. There seemed to be a renewed sense uh, of love for our country, a love for God. And even though it was short-lived, I don't recall hearing the phrase of nationalism or Christian nationalism. And I wonder why. 
In 2008, when President Barack Obama was elected as the first African-American president, it was a great day in the history of our nation in the sense that it revealed how far our nation had come, although we still have much further to go. President Obama was elected by a cross-section of demographics. There was a fervor expressed by those who visibly and vocally supported him as well. And President Obama had a large following and in many ways was untouchable, if we're going to be honest, when it came to honest critique. However, like, like other past administrations, the tone and, the, and, and course and discourse of our nation seemed to go a, a different direction. Instead of American exceptionalism, the belief that our nation is unlike any other, the rhetoric, rhetoric became more like uh, American deconstructionism, the belief that America as it was needed to be deconstructed systemically. For some, I know what I've just said is not going to rest well. Sometimes the truth doesn't. But the facts bear witness of this shift. According to the Pew Research Center, which is not a um, um, conservative-based, I guess, doing statistics, they don't have this conservative ethics, so to speak, Um, they would call themselves objective. Uh, They said this, Barack Obama campaigned for the U.S. presidency on a platform of change. As he prepares to leave office, the country he led for eight years is undeniably different. Profound social, demographic, and technological changes have swept across the United States during Obama's Obama's tenure, as have important shifts in government policy and public uh, opinion. And that's the end of that quote. Now, for more research, you can go find the the, the research I just quoted to you, um, the Pew Research Center study, um, on their website. And I'm going to put the link on my blog at seanbernard.com. Dot wordpress.com, and you can actually go look up the research for yourself about all that they have said about this. For eight years, when religious liberty had not only been threatened um, during the Obama administration, but in many cases deemed discriminatory when apology tours to countries led by dictators were becoming common, when the biblical and traditional view of marriage was not only challenged, but it was demonized. And when abortion was championed and cheered, when the, troop, the two primary political parties became even more divided and divisive, and in my opinion, when our country lost its sense of national identity, many Americans were desperate for something different. There was a desire for a change of direction. So, in 2016, enter a new president who broke the succession of political insiders. Donald Trump, who was laughed off by the media pundits, uh, still remember him coming down this escalator, and the, the media uh, pundits were were laughing at him. They would become, and they still are, his most ardent antagonizers. He shocked the world with his election as the 45th president of the of the United States. I mean, clearly his character was not much different than many of his predecessors, and his rhetoric was less than diplomatic. But if but if there's anything that 75 to 80 million votes during this past election reveals. It's that over the past four years, many of President Trump's policies worked and were undoubtedly uh, reflective of many of the values and ideals that America had been founded upon and, and, and that a vast majority of Americans still embrace. Now, personally, I haven't necessarily been a fan of his personality or his verbal attacks at all, but I've been supportive of a good number of his policies. Not all of them, but a good number of them. And as with other presidents, there there have been decisions made and a great number of comments made that I disagree with wholeheartedly. I think it'd be wrong for me to call out something in in one party and not call out something I disagree with in 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 another party. Um, so there have been things that and decisions that have been made that I disagree with wholeheartedly. But if there's anything though that history teaches us, 
it is that personality doesn't shape a free republic. Policy does. And if you don't think that's true, just wait and see what takes shape over the next four years. No, in, in, my, in, my, in my opinion, I don't think the greatest danger is the cult of Trumpism or Christian nationalism. I believe the greatest dangers as a nation may be willful, willful ignorance and, and indifference. Ignorance regarding our history as a nation that's been founded upon Judeo-Christian principles and indifference toward how we're to steward well what we have been entrusted. And sadly, many professed Christians seem to have a hands-off approach when it comes to difficult topics that on the surface seem hard to reconcile, such as politics and religion. In other words, just, just let life happen and trust God. And to that I say, yes, trust God. But again, don't forsake what God has entrusted to us, like freedom and a responsibility to steward well, not just this planet, but also everything he has given us. Dr. Mark David Hall, who is the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics at George Washington University, in his article, Did America Have a Christian Founding? He writes this, and I'm, I'm quoting here. History is complicated, and we should always be suspicious of simple answers to difficult questions. As we have seen, there is precious little evidence that the founders were deists when a religion excluded from the public square or desired the strict separation of church and state. On the other hand, they identified themselves as Christians, were influenced in important ways by Christian ideas, and generally thought it appropriate for civic authorities to encourage Christianity. So what do these facts mean for Americans who embrace non-Christian faiths or no faith at all? He goes on and says, Although the founders were profoundly influenced by Christianity, they did not design a constitutional order only for fellow believers. They explicitly prohibited religious tests for federal offices. And they were committed to the proposition that all men and women should be free to worship God or not as their consciousness, as their consciousness dictate. Yet it does not follow from this openness that Americans should simply forget about their country's Christian roots. Anyone interested in an accurate account of the nation's past cannot afford to ignore the important influence of faith on many Americans from the Puritans to the, to the present day. Again, he goes on to say, Christian ideas underlie some key tenets of America's constitutional order. For instance, the founders believe that humans are created in the image of God, which led them to design institutions and laws meant to protect and promote human dignity. Because they were convinced that humans are sinful, they attempted to avoid the concentration of power by framing a national government with carefully enumerated powers. As well, the founders were committed to liberty, but they never imagined that provisions of the Bill of Rights would be used to protect licentiousness and they clearly thought moral considerations should inform legislation. America has drifted from these principles. We would do well to reconsider the wisdom of these changes, end quote. Again, that is Dr. Mark David Hall, who is a professor at uh, Herbert Hoover, distinguished uh, professor rather of uh, politics at George Fox University. Interesting. So what about nations, kingdoms, and kings? We talk about the nation that we live in as Americans. And I know that there are many of you who are listening in other countries, and I'm so thankful for you uh, tuning in to Crossroads and Culture. And, uh, but I also know that what happens in America affects other nations as well. And what about nations and kingdoms and kings? Well, when you look throughout Scripture, and, you see, and you're going to see that God has established nations, kingdoms, and kings. That, that must mean something significant. As a matter of fact, listen to God's Word. I'm just going to give you a couple of passages of Scripture, and I could give you many more, but listen to these two. This is out of Daniel chapter 2. It says, He changes times and seasons, speaking about God. 
He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. That's Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. And then Daniel, who was charged by God to reveal the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, said this, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heavens, the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. That's Daniel chapter 2, verse 37 through 38. I mean, I could go on and speak of the multitude of verses in Scripture that speak to how God has ordained nations, kingdoms, and kings for His work and for His glory. The point is, is that these matter, and our nation matters. And as I mentioned earlier, we're to be stewards of what God's entrusted to us. Not, that's not nationalism, that's obedience. Now, I can hear it now. I mean, those who, who like to quote the verse when Jesus put the Pharisees and the Herodians in place by saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In that verse, however, are two implications. The first one is that we have a responsibility to our governing authorities, which means we must steward well and rightly that for which we're responsible. And the second thing, that God rules over all, even our governing authorities. And you can find that in Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, and there's other passages as well. So with that being said, it seems as though it matters to God. Now, without exception, there's only one king. Beth Moore is right. It, it's not Cyrus. But I would also add it's not Obama or Trump or Biden. It's King Jesus. And any king we exalt above King Jesus is an idol and a sin. Any nation we set above allegiance to King Jesus is an idol and a sin. But devotion to a nation or a leader isn't necessarily idolatry. Based on how some have defined Christian nationalism, I would have to think that, that David's mighty men would have been accused of and being, of being considered Israeli nationalists. I mean, they supported King David and were with him to the death. As a matter of fact, they were and are, Israel is, God's chosen people. There's much more that can be said about that and, and unpacked, but, I'm, but I don't have time in, in this podcast for that. But being God's chosen people, I would guess, would carry with it the perception that Israel, the Jewish people, considered themselves as superior to other nations. And I'm sure there were those who did. But God in his sovereignty chose Israel as his people to be a light to the nations. There was a bigger cause than nationalism. And the same way, although certainly not taking the place of Israel, I believe that God has sovereignly ordained America to be a light to the nations. As I, as I mentioned earlier, no other nation has been founded upon such principles and ideals as was this country. There's a purpose for why we're the most advanced nation in the world and considered the leader of the free world. And it most definitely wasn't because of any person, leader, or political party. No, I, I don't believe the greatest danger to the saints of God, the church, is Christian nationalism. I believe the greatest danger to the saints of God, the church, is Christian secularism or Christian materialism or Christian narcissism, or Christian wokeism, or to put it more succinctly, Christian progressivism. Not once have I read where Jesus warned the Jewish people against Jewish nationalism. When I look at Scripture and Jesus' warnings, I do, however, read much about his warning against false prophets and false teachers, the Pharisees and other religious elites, greed, pride, deception. I mean, I could go on. But what this comes down to is not political affiliation, but rather worldview. How do you view the world in which you live, and what are the lenses through which you look that shape your perspective? The scriptures aren't meant to be an additional lens or attachment, but rather the one lens which is to be superimposed over all others. 
it's the corrective lens for uh, an astigmatic so right, like a like a like a stigmatism on your eye that keeps you from seeing well. It, it would be much easier if life could be compartmentalized into categories, right? Like religious, social, political, governmental, economical, biological, vocational, whatever that we could choose to engage in or not. But having a biblical worldview, which I believe is the correct worldview, means that we look at these through the lens of Scripture, not culture alone. God's Word doesn't just shed some light on these, but it gives us clear vision as to how we're to live and respond in each of these overlapping realities. I don't believe this only speaks to America, but to the world, because Scripture is true at all times for all people in all places. And scripture should inform every area of our life, not all except politics. So to my brothers and sisters who are in Christ, who may think that politics and religion should never meet, that's like saying to God, you can have every area of my life except my view of politics. Well, that's not what a life centered to God looks like. All of scripture should inform all of life, especially in the life of a Christian. If you disagree with that, and you can qualify your belief based on the Word of God, I would, I really would, I would genuinely love to have an honest conversation with you. But truthfully, I believe that's where the disconnect is. It's not a secret that the church, generally speaking, has become woefully illiterate when it comes to the Scriptures, both in knowledge and application. The truth is that it is impossible to be literate in anything without knowledge or careful study. And because of the lack of knowledge of God's truth, it's no wonder why many professed Christians are accepting the deceptive teachings of progressive Christianity. In the book of Hosea, the prophet who spoke on God's behalf to the people of Israel said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, which by the way, that's a great book to read right now, um, and specifically chapter 4. Um, God wasn't referring to general knowledge, though, he, but rather a knowledge of him and his ways. You see, when, when there is a void of God's truth in your life, Satan is quick to fill it up with lies. When the foundational truths of the dignity and sanctity of life, the sacred institution of marriage between a man and a woman, the fall of mankind, and, and, and that all have sinned against God, the wrath of God poured out on sin, and the grace of God provided in His great salvation um, that we find in just the first 11 chapters of Genesis, when these are abandoned and replaced with progressive theology, the result is false teaching that leads to a distorted worldview and spiritual destruction. What is most dangerous to the saints of God, his church, is abandoning the truth of God's word and justifying as good what God has called evil. Although it may seem good and noble and even Christ-like to speak love and peace and grace and unity, it's never to be at the expense of the truth of his word and his righteousness. It's because of Christ's righteousness that we can know and display true love. It's because of his righteousness that we can know and have peace. It's because of God's righteousness that we can experience grace that leads us in hot pursuit of his holiness. It's because of his righteousness that we can know and experience true unity. And I do believe that the vast majority of people, followers of Jesus and even those who are not, desire unity and peace. As for me, I, I certainly do. And I will continue to pray for our national, state, and local leaders that they might lead rightly. In the book of Proverbs, God's word says this, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. That's in Proverbs 29, verse 2. Now, the word used there for rule, the word rule, in this text, it speaks to those who rule in a position of authority as over nations or, or any other entity. And we should pray that righteousness would increase and that God would expose the evil and the wickedness that grieves the heart of God. 
and causes all of humanity to groan. So I pray, I pray for Joe Biden, that I pray he will come to understand his need to repent of that which is sinful and turn to Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. I pray that he will acknowledge that every person is created in the image of God by the one true creator God and will do what is right in honoring the sanctity and dignity of all human life from womb to tomb that he will affirm the sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman, and that he will protect and affirm religious liberty for all people. Just as I have prayed and, and still pray for Mr. Trump, I pray for Mr. Biden. As the true follower of Christ, I, I would ask you this. What is the reason you're here in this nation, specifically in America, in this world, and at this time? It's, it's no different a reason than those who came before us had that we're to live in such a way so as to make much of Christ by living lives set apart for his glory, and in doing so, point others to the hope and life that is found only in him. We weren't created to establish a utopia here, which in reality, really, it's, a, it's futile, because God has promised something far greater. But while we're here, however, the, the footprints of our lives should lead to Christ, and as we sojourn in this life, it should be our aim to leave it better than we found it. That's why I seek to make much of Christ and hold fast to his word. It's also why I seek to speak up for that which is right and good and noble when it comes to every area of life, be it religious, political, or any other sphere of influence that we're called to steward well. As Jesus told his disciples, which includes every follower of his, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. We are the light of the world because Jesus is the true light who dwells in every true believer. And because we're called to be in this world, but not of it, every sphere of influence needs the light of Christ lived out through the light bearers that we're called to be, including government and politics. That's not Christian nationalism. That is the kingdom mentality, according to Scripture. I really hope that as you have been able to listen to this episode of this podcast, that it's caused you to think a little bit. It's, I hope, encouraged you. Uh, if nothing else, I hope and pray that it will lead you to pray for our national leaders, our state leaders, our local leaders. And also that you'll pray that God will give you really clear wisdom as to how you should live in these days. And my hope is that you will let Scripture inform and shape every area of your life to know how to live. Um, because God's Word is not true just in certain sections or portions. All of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture is inspired. And it is it's profitable. It is good for correction, rebuke. Uh, it is good in showing us how we should live. Um, that we may do the work that God's called us to, that we may live lives that God's called us to live. So I, that is my prayer for you. And also, too, I hope that you will take this and share this on your social media platforms, whether it be Facebook or Twitter, Instagram, whatever whatever platforms you have, that you would share this, that other people may listen. Uh, at least, hopefully, it will cause them to think a little bit. Um, but my hope and my prayer is that as believers in Jesus, that we will be the light that God has called us to be as Christ lives in us, and that we will show them that our hope is in King Jesus, not in a president, not in a government. But while we live here, 
we are to steward well um, the nation in which he's placed us. And I believe that we should, I, think, I believe we should display um, our Christian belief and principles as it speaks to us in Scripture and not be ashamed of that. So until next time, uh, I hope that you have a great rest of the week uh, and that you will join me again on the next episode of Crossroads and Culture. 